Hello, everybody. Welcome to Monday's episode of Skeptics and Seekers. We've had a little bit of a difficulty just now. Unfortunately, Daniel is not going to be able to make it. The the lovely gentleman who we'd uh, spammed all over the boards and had promised uh, he'd be the the person, the awesome guest. Unfortunately, I just can't reach him. It's probably my fault because of time zones and, and all that. So I'll take the hit for that one. Hopefully, we'll be able to contact connect at uh, another time and see how we go. So with the absence of uh, Daniel, we're just going to have to shoulder it ourselves. So we've got uh, returning guest Daniel licking his, sorry, see, I just can't even get myself right now. We've got returning guest Darren. <laughs> Welcome, Darren. You're you're licking your wounds. You're patching your yourself up. You've got the got your, your limp there. Very impressive that it is. Do you think you can handle another round? Well, it's just you and David today, so I should be able to handle it. Oh, look at that. Spoken like a true hero. And David, you're not no longer going to be the silent person typing hints away in the, the secret chat room. Welcome to your own show. What's it feel like to be a guest? Uh, lovely. Um, I, I don't have to control my behavior. It's on your shoulders now. <laughs> that's it blame everything on the englishman yeah as i say if, if it's somebody who's going to be the baddie in the room it's always going to be the one with the english accent but at least she's not wearing a red shirt yeah <laughs> and i love it when they couldn't find an englishman to uh to come along so they just get an american to put on an english accent and oh boy those hurt there is nothing worse to my ears than an american faking a british accent it's just proper wrong it really is so and um, yeah and on in, on the subject of morality that is objectively wrong so there we go problem solved can and that's the end thank you for joining <laughs> yeah that was about as quick as we thought it would be right <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> right so trying to be serious so what we've decided to do between the three of us is we'll just give it a go between the three of us we're all on the same side pretty much just talk around how some of the issues of morality, the way we see them. So I'm, I'm sorry, Christians, you may or may not be disappointed by what you're going to hear, but you know, may, this is your opportunity to hear how we view the problem. So don't judge us from the context of being wrong because we're not Christian. Just listen to what it is that we've got to say. This is our perspective. This is your opportunity to understand how we view the the difficulties of morality and how to resolve them. So you know, uh, address the the arguments or the comments or the reasoning that we come up with. So also also be kind with the um, audio quality. Everyone else is going to sound pretty good, but I'm not uh, using the setup that I would normally use to record because I wasn't going to be on the show <laughs> until a couple of minutes ago. So <laughs> the excuses come out already. Rather than uh, rather than set up uh, properly, uh, you should be able to hear the words I say, even if they, uh, uh, you know, the audio quality isn't uh, pristine. Yes, right. So we're we're doing this on the fly. So we this is going to be a good test to see how I am at uh, running this up. So the subject is morality. And um, there's multiple directions we could go with on this. So probably the best place to start is the three of us, we're atheists. We reject the concept of a Christian God. We certainly reject the concept of a divine being who projects onto us what moral, moral duties are or 
or even into some circumstances, a rule of morality. So I guess probably the opening question that I should put onto the table, because I see it pushed out quite a lot on discussions about morality. So the straightforward question I'm going to ask is, is there such a thing as a moral law? Does anyone want to attack that? Um, I would probably say it depends on what you mean by law. Uh, if you're talking about um, a descriptive law, um, maybe. If it's a proscriptive law, probably not. Um, although I suppose I could probably be convinced uh, otherwise on those. But um, I think if you're saying moral law, I, I'm not sure that uh, that has enough relevance to the conversation to really say yes or no on that one. Yeah, I would uh, I would say it depends on what you mean by moral and it depends on what you mean by law. Um, so I'm not trying to be a Clinton here. Uh, I'm just, you know, these are these are pretty um, loaded terms in this conversation. Uh, from from the Christian point of view of hearing it. And so do we have laws? Yes, uh, we, we have laws. Who makes those laws? Uh, well, we do. Uh, humans, humans make human laws. Um, are those laws moral? Well, it depends on what you mean by moral. So I think that what we're going to get into in this conversation, at least a little bit, is I don't believe in morality. So, um, I would I would have to say that um, no, from that perspective. But if if you're talking about uh, rules uh, and conventions codified uh, by social creatures to live their best social lives, um, then sure. But I would also say that those laws are made up by humans, both alive today and humans. Uh, who, you know, were the earliest humans hundreds of thousands of years ago. And we've been building on that, um, uh, on those moral laws, if you will, for so long that they are a part of, uh, they're, they're a part of our instinctual behavior now. Um, and so, yes, there are some moral laws if I'm speaking very loosely, but if I'm, if I'm speaking a language that I think that Christians would understand, then I would have to say no. Yeah, and I, I think I agree with most of that. I would make one small caveat to that, though. Um, I don't think that uh, humans created moral laws um, as such. I think what happens is that we have a sense of fairness and empathy that's hardwired into our brains and then whatever actions those that produces is what we ended up calling morality uh sure yeah that's but probably then fair. the question becomes what is what what is the nature of that hardwiring um uh, you know where did that hardwiring come from and that's where i would say it came from eons of uh, evolutionary process well yeah and we didn't we didn't crawl out of the slime hardwired for fairness um actually we kind of did the, the the brain structures that are um 
wired for fairness, they're very much in the um, autonomic areas of the brain. So, I mean, we've had a sense of fairness for a very, very long time. Back before well, humans even existed. Well, that would, that that's going to require a little unpacking if you say we had um, a sense of fairness before we existed. Well, yeah, because our the ancestors back uh, back in the before fish um, had these um, um, structures in the brain. These same structures in the brain. Oh, sure. I don't. I don't have a problem with that. I don't. I, I don't. For instance, think that um, you know that which we consider morality just started with hominids. Um, so we are part of the animal kingdom, and all parts of animal kingdom that are social creatures uh, have social structures, rules and conventions uh, mm -hmm. that allowed them to exist. If they didn't, they wouldn't exist. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's the, the example I use is uh, if you don't have some rules about uh, not murdering people because they looked at you funny, uh, your society will die out pretty fast. You know, you, mm -hmm. you you won't be here long enough to have this conversation. So only the societies that did have uh, th that codified those kinds of useful conventions were around. And uh, so that didn't start with humans. Uh, so if that's if that's what you're saying, yes, uh, but it but it is an evolutionary process. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It is an evolutionary process. And we 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 see stages of it in um, in other animals, right? And this is this is one of those things that um, I'm constantly taking the Christian to task on, and they're constantly not not acknowledging that they have been taken to task. So I'm I'm clearly doing it wrong. Um, so it's it's the uh, the for me, anyway, the problem with the animal kingdom. And uh, so when I was a Christian, this was an important thing to me. Uh, so Christians, listen up, and who knows, maybe you can keep someone else like me from jumping ship. This, this was important. I was under the impression that humans were special in a lot of ways that it doesn't seem like they are. Um, and I, I simply... Um, underestimated uh, the evolutionary process. Uh, and when I realized that the animal kingdom produced much the same behaviors as humans, and, you know, to maybe some lesser degrees, but clearly the same kinds of behaviors, uh, I was shaken by it. So an example of that would be self-sacrifice. You know, I used to be told, well, you know, humans, we, we clearly have a, a, a moral sense because we can, uh, we can self-sacrifice uh, as opposed to just uh, trying to save ourselves like other animals. But it's just not true. Other animals do have uh, the practice, practices of self-sacrifice. Other animals, uh, there are some social creatures in the animal species that uh, have lifelong monogamous relationships and they're far more successful at it by the way than humans it almost doesn't seem like humans were built for lifelong monogamous relationships but other animals are 
And so if you if you consider that a moral attribute, there, there are animals that are far more moral uh, than, than humans. Uh, homosexuality uh, is one of those things that was always listed as the kind of choice that only humans could make. When I, when I realized, oh no, there are many, many animals in the animal kingdom um, that uh, also practice uh, homosexual behavior. I'm, I'm thinking, well, are, are they sinning or is this just, is just, just a natural thing? This seems to be a part of the natural world because I did not know that it was a, a part of the natural world. I just figured it was a choice that bad humans made. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the, the comparisons with animals, I, as I learned more about uh, animal behavior, it, it didn't sit well with the conservative views of uh, human ontology. Uh, Do you think- So a lot, of, a lot of that ceased to make sense to me. Yeah, do you think you had that sense because um, of the soul narrative? Yeah. yeah. So it, it had uh, to be true because of the soul? That's right. Um, the reason humans were different is because we had souls and animals didn't. Because we weren't animals. We were a special creation. So that was, that was the first misunderstanding. Uh, as it happens, no, we are animals. <laughs> Just a little bit more advanced. Um, and... The other difference, of course, is we had souls. And so the oft-asked question of, you know, how would you treat intelligent aliens? Well, answering that in my Christian days, I think I would have said we would have treated them much like dolphins. They're intelligent animals. Wouldn't be cruel to them, but they're not humans. They don't have souls. Yeah. It, it was all what about I, the soul. Yeah, what I find most fascinating about that whole line of reasoning uh, is that Souls were a uh, were originally uh, proposed because people didn't understand basic biology. Uh, when souls were originally proposed, it was basically life, which we now know is a chemical process. And then it slowly built up over time um, until I think Aristotle or Plato or one of those got a hold of it and it became this immaterial thing that people had. And... Um, and it's sort of fascinating that, to me anyways, that this thing that started out as a misunderstanding of basic biological chemistry has now prevented people from realizing that um, that the brain is just what it is. And that if you, you know, and then they seem surprised when things like uh, putting a magnet up to a specific part of your brain changes your morality. Um, because they think that there's this soul that controls your morality rather than the brain. And it all, and they can't seem to get back to it just being a material thing because they, of a misunderstanding three or 4,000 years ago. Well, right. Um, once, I, once I let go of the soul, and I can tell you the reason I let go of the soul is no because... Sorry about that. Because um, all of the things that the Christians of my day, anyway, were saying were unique to humans because of the soul were just knocked down and proven wrong one by one. Uh, and they, they were very clear that humans had souls and animals didn't have souls. And that was the main differentiator. 
uh, well, they were they were wrong in every one of their claims, and I just had to be intellectually honest. Uh, as I as I learned better, I simply had to let go of the soul. Now today, Christians are a little bit more clever; they're a little bit more up to date, and so they're integrating uh, some of our uh, current knowledge about uh, human animal behavior and development with their story about the soul. They they don't have an option though to let go of the soul. They can't uh, they can't let go of the soul uh, and stay and stay Christian. Uh, I I let go of the soul, and when I did, uh, I let go of a lot of the things that held me in, into that process. So, in their ideas. You're breaking up, David. We're we're missing you. I have um, I've walked well away. Uh, they can they can amend their thoughts about the soul. Um, they can try to make them more up to date, uh, but they can't let it go. They they simply cannot let it go. It will cost them Christianity if they do. Uh, and since I had. What I what I thought was uh, the pure Christian idea of what the differentiation between humans and souls in my time that was pretty pretty much knocked down. I had no choice as an as an honest human being to just let it all go. Uh, if I were a Christian today, in the in that frame of mind, and I was in that area of doubt and I was studying, I think that maybe the Christian story could hold up a little better. But it but it couldn't hold up. Um, you know, at this point, uh, 11, 12 years ago. Um, are you sure it couldn't hold up without a soul? Because I was just, uh, while you were saying that, I was thinking about that, because I don't think the Jewish religion has souls per se in it, right? Well, Christians aren't Jewish. Right, um, but I was just thinking, if that's the uh, the place they came from, couldn't they, because it does the Bible, I mean, you know more about Christians the Bible than also, I do. I mean, Jewish, Jews don't also, also don't really have, now, so please, please be kind. Uh, no group, say Christian or Jewish or Muslim, is monolithic. So there are always sects. Right. Uh, but the fat middle, middle of Orthodox Judaism, as I understand it, doesn't, uh, also doesn't have any thoughts of eternity in heaven and hell. So uh, they can live without a soul just fine. Right, but Christianity what I was, cannot. Well, what I was thinking, though, is that um, does the Bible specifically say soul, or does the Bible say that God will create a new body for him in heaven? Because if they're copies rather than like a soul that was, uh, you know, inbound, you know, attached to a human and then goes to heaven, is that any? Would that be any different in the stories told in the Bible than a um, person that's completely material while on the earth, and then God makes them um, a new body and like transplants their mind to the uh, new body? Well, but you just use mind, uh, and they would say uh, yes, humans have a um, non-physical mind, uh, and some would say that's. Uh, it, that's the same as soul, and some would say that's a different thing from the soul. But once you admit to some non-physical uh, human component, well, I wasn't actually, because the mind is the brain. 
So the mind is just how the brain operates. But if you copy that, I mean, it's sort of like copying a, um, a picture uh, from your computer to a, a thumb drive. Um, it's just making a replica of it. So I was, you know, if they, you know, take the human body is completely material and then copy the processes that the brain produces, that produces the personality onto a different body, the spiritual body or whatever that means for heaven, um, would that still fit with the story told in the Bible or would that be uh, completely... Um, out of out of bounds. Uh, some Christians might latch onto it, but I don't think that would save Christianity uh, as a whole. Uh, we have to be pre-existent souls, uh, mm. I think, for for the main of Christianity. There's there are always groups of people who who are a bit more flexible than that. But once again, the fat middle of Christianity is that we're pre-existent souls. And this human body that we're in is just a shell. It's a, it's like a hut. This world is not our home. We're, we're just passing through. And this body is not our home either. Um, it's, it's just the shell that holds the true self. Uh, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So uh, we have to be something else besides that. Yeah, there's something deeply incoherent about that whole concept uh, of a soul. We've got uh, the soul allegedly lasts forever uh, going into the future, but uh, at some point it gets instantly created. And the point at which that gets created is is unclear. It seems to be that part of the argument behind where the when the soul gets created is to justify the whole anti-abortion thing but i won't go too far into that and but then when you actually look at the growing up and learning experience of a human there's clearly no pre-knowledge that arrives with the soul the whole concept of awareness working out how our, how to control this body that we're in the whole aspect of learning and darren's already alluded to changing the experience of ourselves by physically manipulating the processes in the brain all of that describes something material but yet somehow there's this soul thing and everything that the soul apparently learns or experiences comes from everything that we can manipulate physically and it there's just so much incoherence that is not explained about the soul. But oh no, you can't measure it. You can't. You can't weigh it. You you can't uh, test its dimensions. You know, there's there's nothing scientific you can do about it. It's just there, and uh, I think it's it's just we we need some coherence and something that we can actually test and measure about this whole concept because well, as it is, it, also, it just doesn't make any sense. We also need something that can't be. Um, explained in naturalistic terms. I mean, just as a starting point. Uh, so, I don't want to. I don't want to make the mistake of saying that just because we don't understand something means that it's not. There's no naturalistic answer. But at the very least, you have to give me something that doesn't fit uh, well into naturalistic explanations. And uh, I will. I will say this is where. Uh, Dale should probably insert uh, 
his links to his uh, lectures on uh, dualism and his various debates on dualism because uh, Dale has answers to all of these questions. I don't find them convincing, uh, but, uh, excuse me, others might. And uh, he has clearly uh, spent a lot of time uh, studying these things and developing uh, theories about them. And so uh, for any Christian who happens to be listening to us and thinking that, you know, we're making some slam dunk case against uh, your belief system, uh, no. There are there are there are responses to it, and so Dale, uh, feel free to uh, put some of that uh, up there. And just because, once again, just because I don't find them convincing, doesn't mean that uh, your mileage uh, won't vary. But just just but there's a basic example. problem. Go ahead. So yeah, go go with your example, and then I'll jump in with my objections. Okay. Well, I would I would, I would say that one example of how. The things that a Christian might talk about uh, aren't explained, uh, isn't explained with uh, just flesh and blood and evolutionary processes, uh, would be our uh, our ability to make decisions uh, and or our self-awareness. Uh, that's, you know, getting, getting close to the hard problem, as they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, our personalities. Uh, I've had long discussions uh, on the discussion boards about what you know, just what is a soul? What do you mean by that? Uh, and uh, at least one Christian uh, said, "Well, it's our personalities, and you know that sort of thing. Uh, our ability to choose between right and wrong." And so, if if that's how you define soul. Uh, you know, Darren has already brought up there. There are some very advanced things that you can do to just change all of that in a moment. But you don't even have to. You don't have to work that hard. Um, anyone who's been in a car crash uh, and has suffered some uh, brain damage and cognitive loss, guess what? Their decisions are, are going to be different now. They're going to be making different drunk. kinds of decisions. They're going to forget things uh, with you know dementia. They're you know, you're, if it's your memory and you can't remember anything beyond the last 30 seconds, um, well, what, is your soul broken at that point? Your personality changes uh, as you age, um, or certain drugs can change your personality, or, um, you know, some people are uh, born or become uh, uh, extremely uh, retarded. Uh, and does that mean that they don't their soul is broken in, in some way? Well, of course not. And so the kind of explanation uh, that Dale might give for something like this is, yes, uh, he, he wouldn't deny that those things are the case, but he would say, I can't remember the exact term, maybe you can, uh, Darren, but um, uh, your, um, your body goes through this change, your brain goes through this change, and simultaneously... Uh, your soul goes through a change. And it's, it's not that uh, the car accident caused your uh, brain to change its personality. It's that something within your soul also uh, is, 
you know, is, has changed and that's reflected in your body. It's reflected in your body and your soul at the same time. It's just, it's a little bit um, hard to swallow those kinds of explanations. And I guess, um, you know, if they're stated better than what I just did, maybe, maybe they hold up in some um, sense of formal logic, but it just seems like uh, just question begging, uh, in, inventing things to uh, keep from dealing with the obvious answer of your brain was disrupted and now the things that, that Christians say are part of your soul have just are, are no longer functioning properly. Um, we can see what happens when the brain is damaged. And it, and it damages all of those things that Christians call a soul. And yet Christians come up with, have to come up with some other supernatural explanation for why uh, these aspects of their soul and their personality change that don't have anything to do with the brain. It's, it's beyond credulity for me. I can't, uh, I, I can't um, follow that. Yeah, part of the problem is, is it doesn't matter how much research you do on this. Yeah, part of the problem is that it doesn't matter how much um, research you do on the soul. If you can't demonstrate that what you're researching is even a real thing, then it doesn't really matter how much research you've done on it um, or what explanations you've uh, provided for it. If you can't demonstrate that your explanations are an accurate map of reality, then they're just speculation at best and making up stories at worst. And that's yeah, exactly were. what my objection is as well. You you hit it right, David. There are things we don't know, and the hard pr problem of consciousness is the classic uh, of that. There are things that we don't yet understand, and so there are things that we need to try to account. And I think the first problem is we need to try to work out how we're going to work out how we explain this problem. And coming up with bizarre and novel ideas is part of what science does and sometimes those ideas are way off and they're shown to be wrong and sometimes those ideas show that they've got promise and then eventually some of those ideas will actually be experimentally demonstrated but that's the point that you got to get to before you start leading on to all the explanations of how it works you can't just assume that the idea that you've got is the right idea and then start explaining how how it all works you need to show your working my math teacher at school hammered it into me that if i don't show my working it doesn't matter if i've written the right answer down to the exam question i'll get zero points because i need to show how i got there and if i don't show how i've got there i won't get any points for the question and that was drummed into me and this is what people in this field of study need to do and this is what scientists do constantly and all the time yeah, there may be a soul. You heard it here fo first, folks. But before you start talking about how that might work and before you start spending hours and hours and hours creating video lectures or podcast episodes and 325-page documents saying that you're 72.5% sure about it, you really need to come up with the experiment that shows that you're right. And if you haven't done that, then all of that is wasted. I could sp spend the rest of this year writing up pages and pages of documents explaining how everything that we experience is because we're in a software simulation and I could make it work and I could make it fit the data that we experience and I can make it fit all with the theories but if I can't show that that's actually right then all of that is utterly wasted and it's textual masturbation 
and I'm absolutely not interested in that kind of dialogue. Show me the data, show me the test, show me how I can replicate it. And until you've done that, all your descriptions of how it might work are absolutely pointless. So, um, so then let's let's see if we can come up with um, coherent uh, theory, uh, or at least state in a coherent way that that Christians might uh, respect how we account for moral intuitions. Uh, I've had a lot of discussion with uh, David Kimball Cook on the board about this. Um, and uh, in fact, I don't think it's David Cook now. I think about it. Um, Peter, one of those guys, they're good guys. Um, I've had a lot of conversation about, um, the moral intuition, uh, and they are, they're confused as to how such a thing could have developed naturally. And since the topic of this discussion, um, was, uh, explaining morality uh, naturalistically. Uh, let's see if let's see if we can do that. Uh, we say that well, we can do it. Let's see if we can try. Well, before we get there, are we assuming that morality is a combination of a sense of fairness and empathy, or are we assuming it's something else? Because the well, answer changes depending on what you want the what you're defining morality as. Right. That's all. That's all. I'm assuming. I mean, um, my my definition is very reductionist. Uh, so it, it is the set of rules and conventions uh, developed by social features uh, to have a successfully sustainable uh, society. Um, and, and it's those rules that are so successful that they get codified uh, into um, almost uh, sacred ideas. They become axiomatic. It's it's obvious that you shouldn't kill people for looking at you funny. Okay. And so, uh, you're more, so those are the things that become more morals. Right. So your morality, your definition of morality is slightly different from mine. So you're going to have a different answer to that question than I'm going to have. Okay. Tell me, tell me about your definition. Uh, my definition of morality is basically the rules we come up with based on our sense of fairness, empathy, and if we're doing it the most efficiently, John Rawls' uh, veil of ignorance. Um, and we have specific parts of the brain that we can uh, demonstrate actually um, account for our sense of fairness. Um, it's like three or four different areas that all come together. And the parts that um, are associated with our um, sense of unfairness are actually the same parts that uh, um, also handle our um, contempt and disgust reactions to bad tastes and smells. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the ones for fairness are the same parts of our brain that handle um, the reward centers of our brain. And then empathy is in a different part where um, um, uh, is in a different part of the brain and you sort of merge that all together uh, with yet another part of the brain that um, and that is what actually produces our morality. And if you if you 
apply a magnet to the part of the brain that sort of brings it all together, you can change your uh, person's morality. Uh, it's the right temporal peren uh, perennial junction, if anyone's actually curious about that. Okay. Uh, it sounds like our definitions aren't all that different. You're just more describing the process, uh, the, the precursor to us making those rules. Why would we make uh, rules uh, that would produce fairness and so forth? Well, maybe, uh, and so you're, you're describing uh, the process, and my definition doesn't uh, include the process. Right, but if you're describe if you're if the question is how can evolution account for morality, you sort of have to describe the process. Mm -hmm. Well, right in in answering the question, but when defining just what I think morality is. By the way, uh, we we have some fine grained difference, differences there, but I I think our ideas are compatible. They are not compatible to a Christian idea, and so I do oh, want no. to express what I think the Christian ideas and why why what we're saying wouldn't be compatible there, but uh, Matt, how would you define uh, morality? If uh, if you're writing the uh, Wiktionary uh, entry for morality, what does yours say? Um, I would probably say it's the process by which we differentiate between what is right and what is wrong, and. I want to caveat that by saying that what is right and what is wrong is our personal preferences of what is right and what is wrong. They're, they're not uh, objective definitions of what's right and wrong. So let, let me um, give a nod to the Christian and why they might define morality a, a little bit different. Uh, they would put it into a different realm. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2 um, Let's see. Uh, this is, this, I'll just pick up verse 13. This is what we speak, not uh, in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught to us by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit taught words. Just that passage by itself gives you a little bit of insight into the uh, Christian mindset. Uh, morality would be one of those things that they believe falls outside of the human experience. It's a spirit-taught thing uh, using spirit-taught words, uh, and it is the kind of thing that is passed on not by human wisdom. Uh, and uh, Paul follows this up by saying, uh, uh, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God but consider them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are uh, discerned only through the spirit. Again, this is, uh, uh, I can hear shades of Dale here. Uh, spiritual things are discerned only through the spirit. And so if your mechanism for discerning spiritual things is too busted, you're never going to understand it. Uh, and so whereas this does not define uh, morality for a Christian, it should uh, at least uh, let you be aware of how they think in terms of it. It is something that is wholly outside uh, of the human experience. It has nothing to do uh, with humans and rules we made up and things that we thought. We can't even think more uh, moral thoughts uh, on our own. If, if the rules of morality uh, had to come from humans, we would, they would never exist. 
they're they're beyond our ability to invent. Uh, I obviously reject every part of this idea, uh, but this is a part of the Christian mindset uh, that that makes it so different than what we're talking about. They can't accept morality as a purely naturalistic thing. And they can't accept that we know morality purely by naturalistic um, things. And so when we talk about moral intuition, uh, we're talking about uh, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. Um, and when the Christian is talking about moral intuition, they're thinking about some special non-physical component uh, that they have access to. Yeah, but did I lose everyone? No, no, I followed. I just am wondering. It was a really good speech. It was awesome. Um, if you give me your address, I will send uh, you a cookie. Oh, hang on. <laughs> okay, I turned. Uh, I turned my volume down. Uh, so, did you did you catch all of that? Yeah, yeah, I, I did. Okay. Um, Sorry. I'm just not. I'm, Sorry about I that. guess my big thing is. I'm not entirely sure that their um, description of morality is even coherent. I mean, what does it even mean to have some a spirit talking in your ear, telling you what is moral and not moral? It just seems bizarre. Well, it's that spirit part of us that can understand the spiritual realm. Right, but I don't know what uh, so, you mean by the spiritual part of us. Yeah, <laughs> as far mean, as I know, that's not a real thing. So, the, well, right. So this this is why the Christian and the non-Christian can never really be talking about the same thing when they're talking about morality. Yeah, it does Matt, feel like that. I times. mean, get, do you do you feel do you um, you still go to church from time to time, right? I mean, you. Only on you Christmas. are familiar with, you know, Christmas Christian talk about spiritual things. You know what? What? What is this? What are spiritual things? Well, um, understanding God's nature, God's moral nature, and the goodness that flows from that would be a spiritual thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, but does that actually mean anything? I mean, you well, say it, the it, words, it, and you, and I'm guessing it means something to you, but it does, does to it the Christian. Actually, yes, does it actually mean anything? Um, the it Christian, does. Um, this is the possibly, problem. If you ask the Christian what it, what the spirit is, they can't tell you right away. It takes a lot of work for them because Christians never have to explain it to each other. But the thing is, though, spiritual things are assigned. To, to things which are not spiritual. Let me um, give you the kind of example. Say you're sitting, you're in, you've been working in this building uh, for this company for some time, and there's something that you need at home. Say it's, uh, there's a pen or something that you, because you, all your pens at home have run out. So you're sitting in the office building and you see there's a, a nice pen on the desk and you know you really need that pen at home because you know you're going to need to be making some notes at home or you're going to be taking part in a quiz and so you, you need a pen so you 
you go to pick up the pen and just before you do it, because you're the sort of person who has never stolen from work before, before you go and pick up the pen, you get this surge of adrenaline through your body because you're doing an action that you've never done before. And it, it's an unfamiliar action before and it's an unfamiliar mental process that you've done because you've just never done it before. So you get this surge of adrenaline through your body just before you pick it up. Now, to the Christian, that surge of adrenaline is seen as the Holy Spirit convicting you. It, it's, it's given a, a meaning, that, that surge of adrenaline, it's given a spiritual meaning. And the, I have been one of those Christians and I have been with those kinds of Christians. So I'll absolutely say that was the Holy Spirit convicting you, telling you that you shouldn't do what you're about to do. So whereas the likes of yourself, Darren, would immediately just recognize it for what it is and respond accordingly does does that help at all well i mean in a way it does but it, i still yeah. don't in a, in a person with a broken spirit would not feel that surge of adrenaline they would just feel it in their conscience would be seared yeah i i i, I understand the words that you're saying but the problem <laughs> is is that once how do you apply that to I mean, because, well, I mean, we know, we all know that that's not actually anything other than the material brain working. We even know yeah, no, parts of the brain no, that do. control that part of thing. No, we don't. But we, I, I have to, I have to step in for Dale. No, we don't know that. Actually, uh, we do. What we know, well, no. So we <laughs> yes, know we that we know those processes are taking place. But what you can't say is that that's not God using those processes uh, to speak to you, and so your yeah, your can. soul, your 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 uh, soul, your what your moral intuition uh, is the spirit part of the process uh, that you can't see, and the uh, the adrenaline in the feelings, the shortness of breath, that's just kind of the uh, accidents of the process, if you will, if I can use a kind of a Catholic term. Uh, so those are those are the outward effects of it. But you can't yep. say that there's nothing else spiritual going on underneath that. Yeah, we can. Because the the problem with spiritual is one, and it hasn't been defined, so we don't even know what the hell they're talking about. Two, it, the brain and body talks in chemistry, which means if there's anything interacting with the brain or body, it has to introduce chemistry in uh, chemistry and electricity into the system. There's nothing like that that happens. I mean, it's not just uh, uh, a lot of Christians fall into this trap of thinking that, oh, the only thing we know about the brain is just which part, which part lights up when different things happen. That's not actually true, and that's the that um, that mistaken thought that is in Christian circles is why they say that we can't say w one way or the other about all these other things. But neuroscience isn't about just uh, hooking someone up to a machine and watching which uh, which parts of the brain lights up. They're about actually go physically going in, making changes, figuring out which parts of the brain do what. And there is no extra chemicals that just appear out of nowhere and interact with the brain. There are no electrical signals that just appear out of nowhere and interact with the brain. If there were, then that would be huge reason to think that there's something else going on there, but it just doesn't exist. 
Yeah. Well, this is where spirit-body interactionism comes in. Um, and I, I look, uh, click, click the little link that Dale is going to insert into the comments and listen to his um, section on interactionism. Uh, oh, yeah, I've heard it better before. Than I did. <laughs> no, I've so, heard it before. It's mostly just a lot of assertions and no real reason to think that those assertions are anything resembling accurate. Yeah, well, it sounds that way to me, but I don't want to write it off uh, and discourage someone else from listening to it and coming to a different conclusion. Um, and let, let's just say that it's it escapes me how that um, is a proper explanation for uh, the phenomena that we that we observed. Um, but you know, let's let's stick with the project. Uh, we're we're meandering a little bit. Let's stick with the project of trying to. Uh, come up with a natural path for um, morality, uh, explain, explaining the moral uh, intuition on a naturalistic um, level, uh, you know, or as, as uh, Tara might say, uh, you know, how can a bunch of bouncing atoms uh, care about right and wrong? Uh, you just configure them in the right way, and that's what happens. <laughs> okay, uh, you would you like to would you like to start the ev evolutionary process off, Matthew? <laughs> because you might be the only one who has something reasonable to say here. <laughs> I'm sure what Darren's saying is entirely reasonable. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I'm start to it off from where, though, in, in order to in order to start off the evolutionary process of an intelligent being having morality that evolves, you first need to evolve an intelligent being. So let's let's start with the intelligent being, and it's there's a, there's a question that's never been faced before, and it's do I steal the food from my neighbor's garden to to eat it myself because my neighbors put in all the effort into growing their own garden, and I haven't, and theirs looks juicier. The, than mine and it's it's a straightforward uh, de decision and, and what's it based on it well it's probably based on on jealousy and this person is hungry and they have a have a need to fill and probably what would start there is let's assume that they are hungry and they've got a family to to feed well the first thing that it will all start from is it'll start from I have a need, I need some food. What's the easiest way to get from food? So I can get some from my own garden or I could go out in the jungle and hunt and gather some of my own food or there's my neighbor's food over there and my neighbor's being selfish and isn't sharing with me. So, so what do I do? So this person then weighs up information and this is information that is gathered from his locality. He weighs up A, how hungry he is, B, where are the locations that he can get food from notice i'm assuming it's a man um and then he assesses each of those locations that he can get food from according to the difficulty it will be to get food and the likelihood of reward in other words food um, and very possibly the the simplest task for the highest reward is go to your neighbor and steal some of it and let's say he does that and he manages to steal all of his neighbor's foods and his neighbor never suspects him. So he now eats and his neighbor is hungry. And let's make it really simple. The neighbor 
dies of hunger as a result of that. Okay, overly simplistic thing. Yes, it won't happen in real life, but this is just kind of an example of how you wake up. So this person now survives and he's now really lazy. He's got none of the knowledge required to do his own food, but he has got the knowledge to steal somebody else's food. So what happens? He goes and does that some more. So you could potentially, in that scenario, have a gene sequence that is rubbish at farming, rubbish at too scared to go into the jungle to hunt and gather, but really cocky and really good at creeping around at night and stealing neighbors' food. So if that's a habit that he keeps on doing, those are the sequences of genes that are going to propagate uh, through through generations. Let's assume that that happens for multiple generations. That is what you're going to end up with. You're going to end up with a group of people who all they do is go to to the neighbors and steal their food. There you go. Very simplistic so, uh, suggestion of how it might work. Let me pick up. Let me pick up on that story. Um, actually, what you have is a species that dies dies off fairly quickly uh, because it, you end up running out of food producers. <laughs> So eventually, yes, but they'll be the last ones to to die. That's the important point because everybody else would die first. Yeah, and it would have started back when we we were still lizards, not after um, the outer brain. This is this is where I want to pick up because actually, what you're saying, Matthew, is not a hypothetical. This is the story of man. Um, This is the early story of man, uh, very early, and so we can. Look at the work of anthropology, for instance, and um, get get a pretty good sketch of how humans developed socially. And the earliest humans weren't uh, particularly social, uh, and so we were—I should say—the earliest hominids. Uh, and so the the main instinct was survival. And so yes, it would have been. Um, that person has uh, meat. Uh, maybe he hunted. Uh, it's easier for me to steal the meat, maybe easier for me to kill the person, uh, steal the meat and his wife. Um, now I have a family and meat. Um, but we had to evolve beyond that. Uh, and as there became more and more people uh, taking up the same space, uh, it, it became somewhat untenable to just knock all of the producers on the head and steal their stuff. Uh, it, it becomes pretty, pretty easy to uh, realize fairly quickly, I will not survive <laughs> because I, mm-hmm. I can't hunt. Um, and so, yeah, so you need to get combinations of things. But in terms of similar behavior, we do actually see similar behavior to that in both fish and birds. And we see it in nest building to attract a mate. And it's all about right. sex because that's all what the best evolutionary advancements are about. You get birds that that build nests and birds who are not quite so good at building nests do observe those who are. And they go and nick things physically from, from the better nest builders' nests and they'll do it when the other bird's back turned. And you do the same with fish. You've got fish that build ridiculously complex designs on the sea floor moving stones, moving shells, blowing sand away to attract a a female. And then you'll get other fish who will watch them. And when they're off on a hunting party to go and get the next impressive stone, the the not so good fish will come in and steal some of 
the stones that they've laid out on their site and add it to their own because it's so much easier to go and steal from a ready supply than it is to go out and, and find your own. And so we see this kind of theft behavior to get an advantage in birds and animals well, because they need a shag. That is, that is a, um, that is one of the evolutionary acts, but that evolutionary track doesn't live if you don't have the other evolutionary track of social, um, that's uh, successful true. societies and so we have the uh, well you say that parasitic. actually but with with the fish and the bird examples okay yes it may be that the best nest builders don't get the girl at the end because or or the pesky nu nuisances have gone and stolen their things okay fine so the best nest builder for that generation doesn't get to mate and doesn't get to produce offspring so he dies off what that means is for the next generation there is now another best nest builder because everybody's going to be in hierarchy it may be that the average quality of the nest building goes down but the girl still picks the best nest that there is exactly yes. so go ahead uh, darren i i uh, i want to advance the story to well, I society building uh, at some point Okay, so I just want to make clear to those that are listening, um, a lot of people when they talk about evolutionary um, advancement will tell stories like this, but I want the, the listener to really understand what's being said, because if you just take it at face value, it's not going to really make a lot of sense. What's, what the story sort of portrays is the... Um, is passing on... Uh, genetic structures from um, from generation to generation. So when, uh, like Matthew was saying, that uh, the, uh, the bird wants to make a, um, a lovely nest to attract other birds, it's because the birds are hardwired to find certain things attractive. And um, in order to meet that um, expectation, the person trying to attract them has to meet that expectation. And all of that's hardwired into their genetics. So it's, um, so if the genetics uh, produce a behavior that um, doesn't work to get them to reproduce, then that particular uh, genetic structure is not passed on to future uh, um, future offspring in that species. So that uh, that genetic structure um, dies out and the genetic structure that was actually able to produce the behaviors that was able to allow the being to uh, reproduce, that's what got passed down to other offspring in the, the society. So those genetic structures are eventually going to be able, assuming they stay um, the most effective, are going to eventually permutate uh, permutate the entire um, species um, that's, uh, that that one is a part of and all the dead-end uh, um, genetic structures that weren't able to uh, produce the correct behavior uh, would have uh, eventually have died out. And I just want to make sure that people understand that that's what you're referring to when you're making the stories, because otherwise the stories, I don't think really make much sense. 
Yeah. And it also it might also be that the bird or the fish that's going and stealing products from his neighbors is actually a really good nest builder or a really good pattern drawer. But they're so good, they know what products they want or what items they want for their um, for the pro- for what it is that they're making, and they know where to get them. They need to get them from their next door neighbour because that wins them twice. So one, they get the stone or the twig or the coloured object or whatever that they want because they know they want that object. So it gives them a benefit, but at the same time, it hobbles the other person and it reduces their competitor. Their, their ability of their competitor to get what they want because they're both fighting for the same thing. So being a really good nest builder or pattern builder down on the sea floor and being a really good thief makes you the one more likely to get the girl. So let's, let's advance that to the next level, which uh, I think gets to the heart of the discussion, which is cooperative society. Uh, because at some point, um, it is it, it it is just a natural thing if you are the type of being that is what we call a social creature, you are going to realize that cooperation is necessary. Um, and so this you might come to that realization because uh, someone keeps stealing your stuff. You might realize, well, I'm not very strong, but there's strong uh, there's strength in numbers. Maybe I can get together with some of these other people who've also had their stuff stolen, and we can form some kind of defense. Uh, at some point, cooperation uh, is uh, is built into the mechanism of society building. It, it in fact is probably the the main tool for society building, and this is where we start getting ideas of uh, fairness. And uh, what rules, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have to govern our society. Because if everybody was a nomad and then all of a sudden they got together and formed a, a, a cooperative, they wouldn't know how to act. You know, a bunch, throw a bunch of nomads in a room and tell them that you've got to build a, a community. They simply wouldn't know how to do it. And so this happens over time. Uh, but this is this is kind of where the rule building uh, begins when you realize that you have to cooperate with other creatures to accomplish a goal that neither uh, that none of you could have accomplished by yourself. So uh, we see this kind of um, you know little microcosms of, of um, the cooperative uh, society building uh, on playgrounds. Uh, you can just go to any playground and watch. Uh, kids uh, are dropped off by their parents. The kids don't necessarily know each other. Maybe some know each other from school. If they're very young, they don't know each other from school. They get together and they, um, you know, maybe one of them has a ball. And uh, it, it, it won't take too long. It's not too many steps between. There's a bunch of kids. They like to play. Somebody has a ball. Let's make some rules. To, to create a game. Um, this is corporate society building. And you can say that the rules that they devise for this game that they all enjoy is, uh, is a look at moral systems. Um, because this is, this is the system that allows this community, this game, this society to work. Uh, and how did they how did they come up with these rules? Well, they didn't come up with it all at once. Uh, 
you know, maybe someone threw the ball and, uh, you know, another person saw, saw that the ball was coming close to them. I think I'll try to catch it. Oh, that's fun. Well, wait a minute, but you threw it way out there where no one could get it. Well, maybe there should be some kind of boundary. You know, these, this, is how, this is how it happens, and it happens over and over and over again. Um, and so we can kind of watch how cooperation builds rules in society, and those things become codified uh, into uh, something that we then call something else. We call it a game. Uh, we call it a sport. Um, we call it a sacred ritual. Um, and so uh, maybe some of, maybe you two can talk a little bit about uh, cooperation and how that develops into rules and, uh, and so forth. Well, you can't really have cooperation without some form of rule structure to, to guide how it works. But yeah, cooperation is again everywhere throughout the animal kingdom one obvious example that springs to me is dolphins although it's not just dolphins it is other sea mammals when they go hunting they corral fish together as a group and then they take it in turns to to feed themselves and there is even um, some island fishermen who fish with dolphins dolphins help drive the fish to into their fishing nets so they get a good load and then they throw a generous lump, bunch of fish back to the dolphins so the dolphins also get a good meal out of it and so you've got two species cooperating there in fishing we see it on the african savannah with the african hunting dogs which are among my my favorite uh, predators uh, in which you'll find on the central african plains they hunt in packs and sometimes when they're hunting they'll separate into two smaller packs and so they'll drive the animals uh, closer together or sometimes you'll get some which will hang back and the the main pack will go and drive the uh, the main herd away but there'll always be a, a younger one or a weak one or an injured one which won't be able to keep up with the herd and so the ones that hang back will just go and pick off the ones that are left on their own because the pack have driven the herd away and you see all these kinds of uh, complex uh, behaviors among animals and the only way this works is through cooperation and the only way you can have that kind of cooperation is some form of communication some form of understanding that these ones here this is their job to do and those ones over there that is their job to do now we can speculate all day long how the african hunting dogs communicate this to each other about who goes into what pack and who hangs behind and who goes and does the chasing and who goes and and does the attacking I would absolutely love to be alive when when that gets cracked but what we can see from the observations is that is what they're doing it's cooperative behavior um another example is uh, to pick on the the felids uh you've got uh, compare lions with cheetahs if you go and look at the population of uh, hunting cats uh, on the african savannah lions outnumber cheetahs and probably the obvious reason for that is cheetahs predominantly are lone animals they they hunt solo uh, and they only only meet to mate and then the mother will bring up the young and then within two years they're kicked out on their own and they'll generally generally hunt on their own whereas lions stick with their pride and they they hunt together and they they eat together because you, you not every individual will be successful on the hunt but if you've got multiple individuals on the hunt you're automatically increasing your chances of 
making a kill in that one hunting event, whereas a, a cheetah has to make multiple hunting events on its own in order to eat. And that's probably uh, the obvious reason why why, why lions are more numerous on the African savannah than cheetahs are. Somebody fact check me on that. You know, I may have made that all up, but feel free to fact check me on that and uh, let's see how we go. But yes, cooperation really is how it works and it's essential, really. Darren, talk to us about cooperation. I'm sure you have something brainy to say. <laughs> um, well, uh, I don't know if I have too much to add there, except uh, I there's been some interesting research done lately that uh, political parties, whether you're conservative or li uh, liberal, um, is uh, completely um, controlled by your genetic structure. Because if uh, your genetic structure will uh, produce those desires uh, for different things and um, the desires that are um, compatible with conservative conservatism um, are um, are you know uh, expressed and then they're called conservatism and then that's how uh, people um, end up with different desires for uh, different ways of cooperating with each other because they value different things because their genetics predispose uh, predispose them to valuing uh, different things. Interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. So that. You know, we can talk about how people with different sets of desires and cognitive pathways and, you know, maybe even different evolutionary tracks uh, can clash. So, um, you know, if you've got, for instance, generations of rich people who just pass down wealth uh, generation to generation, uh, you might call them uh, the aristocracy. Uh, and if they happen to uh, be the people in power, you might call them royalty. And then you have other people who generation after generation are impoverished. <laughs> um, these people may be the serfs <laughs> or, uh, you know, who, however you might call them. And this, this situation can go on for ages where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and there are rules for the aristocracy, and there are different rules for the poor. Um, and they both uh, can form a kind of a bad symbiosis that lasts for a while, but I don't, I don't think any uh, relationship like that can last forever. Uh, but we can, we can see how morality, how a different morality might come out of the aristocracy um, than the poor might have. And as society changes to something like a, a typical Western society, you can see how the morality of aristocracy from uh, a thousand years ago uh, looks very different from the mor morality of people today. Did so, you change uh, who you vote for, David, from going from Christian to atheist? Yes. Yes, I so actually did. Um, you did. But did did that signify your politics changing significantly? 
Yes, uh, it did actually signify a, a change in politics. You have to understand, everything about me, I was, I was all in, fully committed uh, to the cause of Jesus. Um, and so everything I thought about the world, from the science to the social order to uh, morality to uh, governments, was all based on my understanding of uh, how God wanted me to think about these things. That's that's and, the one organizing principle of everything that I knew about the world. And once you don't have that anymore, all of a sudden, you don't suddenly become liberal. What you suddenly become is lost. Uh, and I went through a period of time utterly lost. I didn't know how to think about anything. And I had to, I mean, I was completely unmade. And so I had to make myself again uh, without the without the God part. And that inevitably led me to almost the opposite conclusions of what I had drawn before. Did you ever have um, a cognitive dissonance of any uh, type when you were... Um just doing whatever you thought God wanted or whatever your priest said God uh, sure. wanted? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think that uh, some of that cognitive dissonance is what leads one to question things. So, for instance, an example, homosexuals were bad people, obviously, uh, and they needed to be put to death uh, because that was God's remedy. I mean, when God was walking around and talking and telling people directly what he says, you know, thus saith the Lord, the Lord said, put the, put the filthy buggers to death. Um, and so if, if you don't think that homosexuals should be put to death, then your mindset is different from God's mindset, except we live in places where it is wrong to put homosexuals to death, no matter what you think about it. Now that, that, create some cognitive dissonance. Um, either all of the world societies, uh, except for maybe Russia, are, are wrong, or we're right and God was wrong, or God's moral intuition has changed over time. There's no good solution for this. So yes, there was uh, certainly a fair amount of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Yeah, it's so sort of that, interesting that, how Yeah, it's sort of interesting there. how our genetic disposition sort of shapes uh what we think and uh how the um even if some even if you're um uh you know taking what someone else tells you as gospel, I mean literally in your case um, how that yeah your ge genetics can save you from that it's interesting. It also sort of if the uh, Christian story is right, it sort of uh, points to a sort of a bad design on the creator's part too. Uh, well, right. So with with um, the last few minutes here, um, I want to look at some specific moral questions. Uh, that the Christian might have, and that anyone might have, for that matter, and see if we can uh, see if any of them defy naturalistic explanations. 
Um, because I think this is part of the Christian argument that uh, morals don't come from humans. They don't evolve from humans. And, you know, the Bible, uh, you know, tells a story that's so brilliant, no human could come up with it, that kind of thing. So let's see. Let, stop it. <laughs> Just saying I've read a lot of different religious texts. I don't think the Bible is all that uh, special. It's, it's special. No okay. Could, they couldn't have come up with a talking uh, donkey. They couldn't have done it. Um, where was I? No, no human could come up with a flood story. Um, anyway, <laughs> respectful. Uh, so let's start with uh, something easy. Thou shalt not kill. I've been using this one as an example um, for a, a lot. Um, any society that does not quickly come up with something like thou shalt not kill is going to die out yep. <laughs> because everyone will be killed. <laughs> so I don't, you know, as far as naturalistic explanations, I can't think of any easier moral command than thou shalt not kill on a naturalistic basis because you've got to come up with reasons to tolerate people that you don't like. And if, if you don't, your society is going to be gone, then you're going to have to find another society or you're going to uh, find yourself, you know, a nomad again, and you don't get the advantages of things that uh, societies have. And, you know, nobody wants their friends, family members, brothers, daughters, uh, mothers, wives uh, murdered. And so you have to very quickly come up with a thou shalt not kill. Um yeah, and it's actually not even for 90%. It's for the 10% that are wired differently than everyone else. Sure. Do, but do, do either of you see a problem explaining a, a moral law about not murdering in naturalistic ways? No, but you don't even need it to be a rule. You know, people people get squeamish over over doing things like that, not just with other humans, but with animals. People get squeamish over killing animals. So how on earth are they going to kill a human whether they wanted to or not? So ah, but I don't Christian even says, think... Why are you squeamish? Why are you squeamish? You're squeamish because the spirit, your conscience, uh, your moral intuition, your God-given uh, compass is telling you that killing is wrong. How do you respond to that, huh? You're squeamish for exactly the same reason that you wouldn't pick up a rotten fruit. You know, it is part of your DNA. It is a yuck response. It is a default reaction that your body does when it sees or when it is exposed to certain things. That is it's... entirely down to our, our DNA, our genetics, and our instant fight-or-flight responses. Yep, and it's something we've had since uh, we were crawling on all, all fours with scales. Okay, uh, thou shalt not kill is easy. Thou shalt not steal, equally easy. Um, it's easier for people to steal than to kill, but uh, we're talking about cooperation in societies. Uh, and if uh, the group is, let's say there is a common store of food against uh, the winter, and if someone is stealing from that, uh, that quickly harms society and they will freeze you out. Uh, thou shalt not steal is also a very easy law for humans to come up with when they're trying to form corporate societies. Um, 
so let's let's move on from the low hanging fruit. What about the moral instinct to help someone who is in danger? So let's say a person is uh, has found themselves in the water and they can't swim because almost no one can swim uh, in in the earliest times. Um, they're struggling. What what is the moral instinct that makes someone say, "I'm going to have to go in there and try to help them, even though it's dangerous"? What, what can explain I will call, that? Can nature explain that? I will call that the anterior insular cortex. That's where our empathy comes from, and it's something that that evolved back when we were on all fours and still had scales. Matthew, you have anything to add to that that doesn't require me to take a biology course? <laughs> I'll, I'll try to restate it in simpler words, but I will effectively be saying the same thing. If you rewind to back to when humans or whatever, or proto-humans or whatever became proto-humans, when they were living in small groups, you wanted your, you needed your small group to survive in amongst all the horrors and challenges and difficulties of life that are around you and whether it was you were having difficulty climbing a tree and you got to a point where you're about to fall or whether you're having difficulty crossing a stream and you're in significant danger of drowning or any of the other potential dangers that you would come about it made good practical sense for you to go as as groups or to, or and to help your your fellow um group member because everybody helping each other really was the only way you were going to survive if you lose a group member every couple of months throughout the harsh winter then you're not going to be very good at surviving and you're going to need to be producing a lot of offspring to make up for these deaths so helping each other is really a good thing and if the person that's in trouble is the person who's the best house builder or the best fire builder or the best at making medicine or the best at making alcohol if they've got a need within the group that you recognize then even more so you're going to want to recognize them so that habit i don't really see any difficulty with where whenever that kind of recognition started the, that recognition will very quickly become a genetic predisposition to go and do that and the whole empathy with your with your fellow man and, and then empathy with your fellow creature and things like that that will just rapidly move out from there because that is how these kinds of things survive and we see animals helping each other as well it's really okay. not a difficult thing to imagine matthew i like your answer better than uh, darren's because i understood your answer uh, I've got a feeling <laughs> I'm going to like I'm going to like Darren's answer better for this one. So let's just do a follow up on that. And again, it's something I hear a lot. So Matthew, you told a story uh, that's very understandable of why we might want to help people in our tribe. Maybe also their families, and we've got familiar bond, familiar bonds. Or maybe it's the the good house builder, and uh, we need that person for the, the winter times. So someone takes a risk to save him. But what about our uh, impulse to help seemingly utterly useless people? Well, by the time we get to that position, we've already got the genetic predisposition to help people in trouble from the legacy of the necessity of helping 
those who we do rely on and helping those who also rely on us in turn. That whole group structure, everybody needs everybody else. So that's where it comes from. And so then when we go out and you know, societies get bigger and we intermix and intermingle with other things, that's a trigger, that a genetic trigger of seeing someone or something or, or some other animal that we've never seen before in trouble, that still triggers that exact same genetic response. So it doesn't matter that the individual that we see that's drowning is next door's cute puppy or the dog that bit us last year or whether it's our child or whether it's the neighbor that we had a fight with yesterday. The, the same trigger is going to happen in us. Somebody is drowning. Something is doing horrible. I have empathy for what's going on there what do I do next? And it's only when we ask the question, what do I do next, that we then start to process it with our cognitive brain. And we might decide that the dog that bit us and the neighbor that we had an argument aren't worth fighting, in which case we make the decision to turn away. But that's then, that's no longer a genetic decision. Uh, we, the genetic decision is the one of empathy that Darren described earlier. That's somebody's in trouble, help. And then it's when we get there, we then start to work out, can I help? What is it I need to do? Am I somebody who might look suspicious if I'm trying to help them? In which case, maybe I won't, maybe I'll just call the police. Do I have a method of calling the police? No, I don't. Okay, I need to do something. Can I shout? Is there somebody I can shout to? Oh, no, maybe there's a... Do I care about them enough to keep thinking about this? No, I don't. I'll walk away. Actually, no, I do care about them. Okay, I'm going to do something right. What is the most effective thing that I can do? And is it holding a branch out? to them is it swimming out to them is it looking for a bridge that i can jump off onto can i throw something else out to them and we start making all these calculations but everything rewinds back to that base genetic response trouble help yeah, and it's also worth noting out that all those considerations that you're making, they come from other parts of the brain. Uh, Self-preservation, yeah. um, sense of fairness. Uh, are they in my tribe, outside of my tribe? Um, are they in my circle of um, concern? All of that goes into it. And all of those have different structures in the brain that come together to work together to make those decisions. And on aside from that, one of the things years ago with work, I did a... Um, first aid course in the workplace for dangerous uh, scenarios where you, when you might be at work and it was a week-long course it was quite a good course but at what one of the days on this course was what do you do when the person that you need to help is in a dangerous situation they, they might have had an industrial accident there might be dangerous industrial fluids around them there might be poisonous gases in the vicinity of them or there could be a fire and they were saying on the course too many people when they're faced with that situation they just don't think they just see somebody injured and hurt and they just run straight in and try to help them and then realize that they've got themselves into trouble and now there's two people that need to be rescued and they really laid it onto us before you run in you need to stop you need to assess the situation you need to look at the dangers because our genetic makeup to go and help somebody is so strong in these situations we just yeah. won't stop to look at what the dangers are and this is why people dive into freezing cold rapid running water to save their pet dog and then find out that they're actually not a good enough swimmer for that water and end up drowning and then the dog finds themselves making mouse mastery those things happen because we're not actually very good at overriding with common sense what we are genetically predisposed to do yeah, all those structures are very um, deep, uh, buried deep down in the brain. They're all the oldest ones. 
Okay. Um, let's have a little fun. Um, why uh, does it seem so many people uh, naturally come to the conclusion that masturbation is wrong? Like what? Uh, it feels so is that, good. Is that God telling us it's wrong, uh, or is there a naturalistic explanation why people might feel guilty about it? Uh, I don't know. Maybe they're masochists. Um, I mostly I think the whole sexual thing I think is more um, rationalization and just people trying to control other people. It's a basic con man art uh, tactic. It, you tell someone that what they uh, enjoy is wrong, then they're more likely to actually um, listen to what you're saying for some reason. And maybe it's because they can feel superior and judgmental over other people. I don't know, but it's um, a fairly common tactic for co that con men use to I control think, their marks. I think there might be an evolutionary story here. Um, I I think my, my guess would be that um, it became fairly apparent early on that uh, you don't get babies without male sperm. Um, and there was a, a time when uh, it was very important to build your society. One of the, one of the best ways to make sure that your society uh, could compete well with other society was to make yours bigger. Um, so what, what makes babies? Well, you have to inseminate uh, women and there may have been a, um, let's say uh, uh, an advantage uh, to those who could produce more semen uh, in the place where it belongs to make babies. Uh, and it may have been seen by people who didn't fully understand the process that if you're spilling your, your semen in non-productive places, then you are endangering your society. Um, that, that needs to go in the baby-making place. So that would be, that would be my guess at the evolutionary story. We have, in fact, a story like that in the Bible. Uh, the reason masturbation is called onanism is because of a dude named Onan. Uh, <laughs> and his, um, his mandate, according to Jewish law, was uh, to marry his dead brother's wife. Uh, so this is kind of how it happened, because wives were like property. And so um, his older brother uh, died, and so his wife was passed on to him, and it was his job to uh, impregnate her, and he didn't want to. And so he uh, spilled his seed on the ground, and God killed him for it. <laughs> so um, I don't think the taboo started there. That story was told because of the taboo, but I think there is something in the story itself that gives us an idea of uh, early human mindset on, uh, on uh, things like that. So that would be, that would be my guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I, I buy that story, honestly. Um, just because of the way sperm works. Uh, I mean, you, Reproduce it. I mean, you get more of it every day, pretty much. Um, I honestly think that it's probably another part of our psyche that's um, that uh, is the reason for that. 
Um, and I would guess it has to do with control. Um, people trying to control other people. Yeah, that's your story. I like mine better. Hey, Matt, do you have a story? <laughs> Well, of course you like yours better. You're, uh, you, like, yours, yeah. you would have told my story if you liked mine better. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't really have a theory, to be quite honest. It's, um, it's clearly associated with some, with um, the, certainly in terms in Christianity. I'm pretty sure it must be associated with uh, concepts of holiness but i really don't understand how um how it can make you unholy you know it's it's all these i know it's these sexual ejections and uh, and stuff and maybe it's something along the lines of um uh, the bleeding women as well you know it's something coming out and it's a fluid and therefore icky um and therefore in order to be holy you can't have any of that stuff and and maybe it's also because we've got this whole thing in elite sportsmen that they're told that they're not allowed to unload for 24 hours be, before a fight because it keeps them all hepped up and masculine. They've got more more maleness uh, going through them so they can perform the better Rocky in their fight. Movie, women weaken well, legs. You see, you got well, it right there. Yeah, yeah well, so so maybe it stems from before before a battle. You know, the soldiers were were barred from it, and um, maybe these kinds of things just get. I I really don't know. Anything that I would say would be a pure guess, and but well, the only one thing that I'm sure of is it's utterly bizarre and ridiculous diktat to have. You know, let the man have his pleasure, and if it means that he's focusing on himself instead of an imagined de deity for thirty seconds, well, what's the harm? Seriously. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you, as someone other... who has masturbated before, the man is not focusing on himself. Um, he's, well, okay, he's fair envisioning enough. something <laughs> else. <laughs> well, I can't think of any other cultures that have that. Um, just off the top of my head, I can't think of any other cultures that have that anti-masturbation thing. My guess for the fighting is that uh, after you masturbate, it releases chemicals in your brain that actually do make you sleepy. So... Um, if that's what's happening with the fighting, that would be my guess why. Okay. Yeah, that could um, work. Maybe, maybe one more. Do do either of you have a story? A, I'm sorry, a um, moral, a, a thing that Christians think of as a moral that can't be explained by evolution. Because honestly, I've never heard them talk about any type of morality that can't be explained naturally. So I, I personally don't, I can't imagine um, some, some thing that we have a deep seated moral intuition for that, um, that we, there, there are no naturalistic explanations for it. Even if the explanations we come up with are wrong, they make sense. Uh, right. And so it's, uh, it's it's hard to know exactly which of the stories are right, but for all of these things, we can come up with multiple uh, ways that it could have happened naturalistically. So, can can any of you think of something that the Christian thinks of as moral that you would have a hard time explaining naturalistically? 
was going to say something like uh, obeying God or something, but even that, we we understand the naturalistic that reasons why easy. people. Well, yeah, I mean, once I thought about it for a moment, but that was the only thing that came to mind that uh, he's going to send you to close. hell if you don't obey him. I mean, yeah, who's not going to obey that? <laughs> well, it's not even that. We have an uh, overdeveloped uh, agency detection system in our brains, so it's. Um, and a, a penchant for um, authority. So, and all of that's part of our, the structure of our brain. So, I mean, even that's really easy to um, figure out. It's just, that was the only thing that came to mind and even that doesn't work. So I guess my, the answer to your question about? is no, I don't have any. Human experimental testing. We've Human got a virus testing. ravaging them parts of the population going on at the moment. What we need to do is we need to segregate Australia. No one is allowed in or out of Australia. And everybody who is positive with the virus goes to Australia. And then we subsection Australia into different regions. And we test um, that malaria drug on one population and we test the Russian vaccine on another population and we do that until we work out how we're going to what the most effective way of curing the virus is but you're only allowed you're only not you're only allowed you're only barred from going to Australia if you don't have the virus so therefore the rest of the world's population is healthy and that's the state of affairs that exists until we've resolved the virus is that a Christian morality that you were... No, no, I'm saying there? that Christians would object to us doing that, but I'm proposing that we should do that. And so what you're saying is, why do we think that's wrong under a naturalistic explanation? Because that would help the majority of people. Yes. Screw those uh, I Australians. Think, I think we're going back to the anterior insular cortex for that one. <laughs> <laughs> He's using those big words again. <laughs> okay, uh, folks, uh, your homework is to look up interior is a mirror neurons. Um, so that's your, that's uh, that's your homework. So yeah, I don't. It's it's a hard discussion for me, even just thinking about it seriously. I've been thinking about this show in, in the run up, and I was hoping to hear uh, the Christian express you know, something that they didn't feel like had a naturalistic explanation that I could chew on, but I couldn't myself come up with anything. Um, yeah, I don't think it's the um, explanations that the Christians really have issues with. I think it's um, the grounding that they um, really have an issue with, um, you know, because they think that uh, God grounds morality. That's how you can... That's where you get your ought from. Your ought mm -hmm. to um, follow the morality. I think that's where the real sticking point for them. Yeah, and that's an expression that just makes no sense to me whatsoever. And I pretty much roll my eyes when I hear that because it, it's a thing that's said. It's a thing that's thrown out there, but there's no justification given for it. And whatever phrase it is that comes next out of the Christian's mouth just assumes that this God grounds morality statement that they've made is true. And it's, it's never adequately demonstrated or justified. Yeah. And whenever I ask them what they mean by it, I usually get some form of, well, we're property of God, so he can do whatever yeah. he wants with us. Yeah. Um, Which is and, not objective morality. That is, that is as subjective as it comes. 
That's it's yep. just God's subjectivity, uh, but that's still very subjective. So, uh, yeah, I I have property and I can do with it whatever I want. There's nothing objective about that. Uh, so I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure how that helps the Christian. So, guys, uh, we've had four discussions on morality, and we're going. We're getting ready to throw it to. Uh, the A team uh, to wrap it up in the finale. Uh, the A team is Brian with a Y and uh, Marvin. Marvin's going to come back to finish what he started. I'll be there uh, as a moderator, but it, mostly my job is to throw gasoline on the situation, and um, it, that's my job. <laughs> so, but what I, and there may be some guests. Uh, I'm, I'm planning a few drop-ins. Um, but what I want to do uh, as we wrap up is uh, take a 30,000-foot view of this subject morality and uh, tell the finale hosts what you want them to cover. What what have we seen that's been interesting uh, in these discussions? What has gone undercovered? Uh, what needs more explanation? Uh, give give them some idea of uh, where they want to go. I want to start with you, Darren. Well, I think there needs to be uh, some sort of agreement on what morality is, because if the Christian is talking about uh god owns us and he whatever he says goes and we're talking about mm -hmm. uh structures in the brain that um produce behaviors um that we have called morality then there's no agreement there they're basically talking past each other so it'd be interesting to see if there is a way for the christian and the atheist to be talking about the same thing when they talk when they're talking about morality well, interesting, Dale and Val, uh, in the first show, Moral Ontology, um, uh, seemed to think that the Christian and atheist, at least from their point of view, is talking about the same thing. I disagreed with them, uh, but, uh, you know, maybe at some very high uh, academic philosophic, philosophical level, Maybe that's true, but on the level that I can access, uh, Christians and atheists don't seem to be talking about the same thing at all when they're talking about morality. Uh, so maybe, uh, yeah, maybe there is room to clean that up a bit. Matt? Um, yeah, I want to see some justification for, for, the, for any assertion that says that morality comes from a place other than our own preferences, because all I see is that being asserted as a fact and then being assumed that, that that's good enough. I want to see how that is known. I just don't, I don't want to hear yet more assertions that that's the case. I want to hear how it is known. Um, and because we've got relative, we're still learning obviously, but we've got relative good, relatively good explanations on, on how morality is, is natural. And, you know, really building into that the complexity of how a a supernatural being which again the existence of that is another problem itself uh, and how that works into us and then 
in amongst all of that, they then got this huge glaring issue. Is every time you hear two Christians talking about a morality issue on on Christian programs like Unbelievable, but not just on on Unbelievable, they can disagree. You get two Christians disagreeing about uh, homosexuality being moral. You get Christians disagreeing about the, the the women's place in society, and and all these other things. Things that you, you are supposed to be settled. And yet you've got Christians, they're reading the same Bible, and this came up last night, and they come to wildly different conclusions. If that's not good enough for Christians to go, oh, maybe we might be wrong. I want to hear the Christian admit that that is actually a challenge to their fundamental foundation of where they think morality comes from. Yeah, I would like to second that. At some point, I'd love to see a Christian actually demonstrate that what they're claiming is true. That'd be a nice change. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just add on to uh, Matt's request um, and say what I what I want to see in the finale uh, are both atheists and Christians showing their work, and so I would like to see you dealing with some you know moral issues, things where a moral decision would have to be made, uh, and then show me. From whatever your moral philosophy, I'm using air quotes here, uh, whatever your your moral philosophy is, take me from there to the decision that you make uh, about what the right thing to do is. I, I want to see that, and I, I don't want to just hear, oh, well, my morality is based on God, and therefore... Uh, you know, homo, I, you know, homosexuals shouldn't be allowed to marry. That's not, I, I, that's, I need a bridge. I need uh, you to show me how this moral system of yours functions uh, in the end result of your making decisions. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I want to see that, I want to see that exercise done on both sides, because if you can't do that, if either side can't do that, if you can't build a bridge from moral philosophy to, to the moral decision, then your moral philosophy is bullshit. Well, I generally tend to think moral philosophy is bullshit anyways. Well, yeah, so I, I mean, <laughs> I do too. Uh, but I can be proven wrong by someone just showing their work. So uh, that's my request. Uh, show your work. All right, guys. Um, well, I appreciate that. This uh, has been an interesting show. I was going to kibitz the show um, uh, silently uh, through chat because I don't feel well. I feel like like uh, warmed over crap. Um, maybe a little worse than that. So I wasn't I wasn't thinking about ways to uh, do a show today. I was just I was uh, sitting in the expensive seats um, and I wanted to enjoy a uh, fight. Instead, I ended up in the ring. Uh, (laughs) it wasn't going to be a flight if daniel was going to be on (laughs) well i'm just saying when you buy a a ticket to a boxing match you're not actually buying a ticket to be inside the cage that's not that's not um that's not right uh but but here we are and i'm glad that i was here and i um this gives me some food to think about i hope it gives uh you the audience some food to think about and if we catch up with Daniel again. We might uh, get him as a uh, work-in guest in the uh, finale uh, because I definitely would like to hear from him. 
Uh, Matthew, um, there's a good chance the finale will be like, um, it would actually be late um, because Marvin is 12 hours further than me. You're five hours further than me, so he's seven hours further than you. So seven in the morning for him would be seven in the evening for me the night before. And it would be, what, midnight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll be getting my uh, so much-needed beauty sleep at that point. I'm, I'm guessing that you will probably not be uh, one of the drop-ins on the finale. Um, yeah, I don't think I'd be able to make that, but thanks for thinking of me. Sure. Uh, maybe maybe Darren would be able to uh, do a drop-in. Uh, we're going to try to get Daniel uh, to come by. Dale, if uh, he's available, I'd definitely like him to uh, uh, come by and do a drop-in. Maybe Val uh, will do five minutes with us as well. Uh, so uh, it will... It will be a star-studded um, finale extravaganza, I hope. Or it'll just be uh, <laughs> Marvin and Brian uh, talking about the ideas that we have presented. Uh, we'll just have to see. But it's coming in hopefully a little, little bit less than a week, um, maybe five to six days from uh, the time I record this. It's Monday afternoon. Uh, i try to get this out tonight. And so in a few days so you guys can catch up on all of the previous podcasts and um, start putting in your questions in the comments uh, things that you want uh, Marvin and Brian to talk about as they wrap this up we don't want to miss anything the whole point of this was to cover morality uh, in all of the angles that we could think about and if we've missed something put it in the comments we'll see it and uh, we'll make sure it's covered so until then Thanks very much. Bye now. Thank you all. Cheers, guys. Have fun.